When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, welcome to The Notebook. I am Marc-Antoine Golin with Arpen Bassou on Friday, December 8th. And uh, Arpen, the Canadians are leaving. Uh, well, as we're recording this, they have, uh, they're flying to Buffalo to face the Sabres tomorrow. And they'll be back for a uh, second, uh, well, for back-to-back. They're going to be back in Montreal on Sunday night um, to face the Nashville Predators. Uh, they, they just had... Uh, How should I say a, 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 clin- a hockey clinic <laughs> by the the LA Kings? But it's uh, it's just uh, for a team that wants to develop and wants to grow. Uh, they sure faced a, a team that was mature and has shown them what what it looks like to be a lot more closer to a finished product. Yeah. So let's let's lay the groundwork for this episode on monday during our mailbag episode we had a lot of questions um that were kind of big picture future questions so we decided we would this being future friday um that we would uh kind of tackle them in a, in a whole episode because there's not a they're not quick answers to some of these questions and so yeah when you look at the kings the kings are something that the canadians could aspire to and and there's a lot of facets to how the kings became who they are this season um and listen they're not a they're not a slam dunk to win the stanley cup anymore but they've reached a stage where they can be considered a legitimate contender for the stanley cup um and and you look at how they're built you know drew dowdy and kopitar have been the mainstays they needed them to continue to excel you know well into their 30s which they've done uh they needed adrian kempe to become a pretty high-end goal scorer for them which wasn't obvious two or three years ago. It, it, it wasn't clear that Kempe was going to become this. Um, needed Quinton Byfield to become what he's become. Um, had to be patient with that. Wasn't obvious two or three years ago that this was going to be the end result, but this is why he was drafted number two overall in 2020. Now he's showing it. Um, and and several other, you know, I mean, Mikey Anderson's kind of a guy that sort of falls in, but he's an important piece of that puzzle. There's all sorts of, you know, signing Phil Deneau and free agency, having the Canadians let Phil Deneau get to free agency um, and for the Kings to sign him, you know, landing Pierre-Luc Dubois in a trade, uh, all different, you know, free agency, drafting, uh, trades, they've done it all. And yeah. all of it has to come together into a nice little package, which it seems has happened for them. And so good for them. So that's, one way of doing it um the canadian's opponent tomorrow buffalo has done another way i've had an incredible run at the draft um really hitting on a lot of their picks not not just the first overall with darlene and power and not even you know the top 10 pick dylan cousins who is looking like a real stud and and you know but there's just a whole series of picks they've made they had to kind of Land Tage Thompson and have him become sort of an elite offensive player. 
when that wasn't obvious. And so, you know, a lot of things had to go right. But you look at the Sabres and they're struggling. They're having a difficult season. Well, that's and, it. Yeah, that's so, it. That, it's, an, it's an interesting thing when you look at the, at the Sabres, because I remember prior to the season, the Canadians, well, a lot of fans were saying, well, the Canadians should follow what the Sabres are doing. Uh, the, the, the amount of under 23 talent they've got is amazing. Uh, and it's going to continue coming in the pipeline in the next two or three years. But I think it goes to show, and everybody, I think, out of the Atlantic Division with Montreal, Ottawa, Buffalo, and Detroit, I think most people thought that Buffalo would probably be the best team among those four this season. And the mm-hmm. fact that they're still threading water uh, goes to show how long that can be as a process. So... I'll I'll use the fact that they're they're playing against the Sabers tomorrow to to launch that discussion that way. But uh, when people hope that the Canadians will be able to turn it around and do the rebuild in, in let's say in three years, how realistic is that to hope that a turnaround of that magnitude with so many competitive teams to beat uh, mm-hmm. can be realistically done? When you look at a team that uh, like the Sabres, who, in theory, under Kevin Adams, have a very coherent, potent blueprint, and yet mm-hmm. the results take time to to be, you know, to come. Maybe a little bit. Um, I don't think the Canadians are going at it the same way as the Sabres did. I mean, let's be honest. When the Sabres drafted Rasmus Dahlin in 2018, number one overall, uh It, they had gone scorched earth, you know, they were still, they hadn't gone scorched earth. They were still scorched earth from when they originally went scorched earth in an effort to get Connor McDavid. And so, you know, 2018, it's already, it's already five years ago and they're not yeah. there. And so that right there, and, and they have a stud in Darlene. Listen, this season is not going the way he was trending, but you know, I had him on my Norris ballot last year, um, further down, but still he was on there. Uh, You know, Owen Power looks like he'll be uh, a great defenseman. You know, they have Matias Samuelson locked up long term. They have, they have, they've done everything right, seemingly. Yeah. Um, except for address the goaltending, which is one of the reasons why they've struggled this season. But it's not the only reason. There's a lot of other things going on there. And so, yeah, I think they're an example. Ottawa's an example. Um, you look at teams that are still trying to kind of come out of it, who are sort of in the same grouping as the Canadians, you look at the Ducks, they're loaded with talent right now, young talent, very similarly to the Sabres. Uh, you look at Mason McTavish and Zegris and and Pavel Minchikov and, and the list goes on. You know, Jamie Drysdale, yeah. there's there's just Leo a Carlson lot of now. Leo Carlson now, who's going to be an incredible player. Yeah. Um, you know, Owen Zellweger, there's, there's, there's just so many nice young pieces there, but The process of getting over the hump is is very difficult to pinpoint exactly how that's done. Um, I'm not going to suggest that Detroit is over the hump, but man, they're they seem closer to doing that than any of these other teams in the division that we've been talking about who are tr- going to try and pierce that you know that group in the top four. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's hard to. S- To say and listen before the season i mean a lot of people were like what is this eiser plan what is he doing you know he's spending all this money on jt comfer and david perron and and 
you know, Andrew Klopp and like these just these odd veteran depth style pieces. Adding uh, Petrie. Adding Petrie, yeah. Like it's just it's just some you know, a very active in free agency seemingly before he needed to be, but mm-hmm. just goes to show that there's no formula to this. It's not a set formula. And the Canadians it's the comparison game, which we're gonna do regardless, but the comparison game is not um it's not necessarily wise when it comes to building when it comes to team building, which is you know, Kent Hughes on Saturday comes out and 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 seems very uncomfortable saying the word rebuild, even though that's exactly what he's describing and that's what they're doing. But it's just a word, you know. What every team in the NHL is trying to do is team is build a team, and you know the Canadians didn't go scorched earth. Brendan Gallagher's still here. Josh Anderson's still here. They signed Jake Allen for two years. I mean, it's not as if they they just completely gutted themselves of all veterans, but they definitely have let some people go. They've definitely traded some people away. Um, but they're going about it in their own way. So today we want to look at how the Canadians are going about it and maybe try to find some some similar situations around the league. But it's it's really it's hard it's hard to say because I would have been willing to bet a decent amount of money prior to the season that Detroit was going to struggle somewhat despite adding to Brinkett. But the, the emergence of the talent in Ottawa and Buffalo, you know, these super, like these superstars on the cusp, Tim Stutzla, Brady Kachuk, uh, Batherson, Norris, like all these guys that Ottawa has uh, and all these guys that Buffalo has that we just mentioned, they just seem to be entering that window where, they are highly impactful players in the prime of their career, beginning the prime of their careers. And it's just not working out that way. You know, I forgot Jake Sanderson in, in Ottawa. I mean, there's just, there's, there's, and so the Canadians maybe don't look quite ready to make that jump now, but I think it's a highly variable thing. Um, so we're going to try to do this exercise. <laughs> Yeah, but that's my that's my oh. disclaimer. That's my disclaimer that that you know if you ask Kevin Adams two years ago where he thought his team would be two years from now, I think he'd say that it would look kind of like it looks now, except it's not working. You know, not so far at least. It's early in the season still, but they you know it's really never t- too early in an NHL season with all the parity and how difficult it is to climb the standings. Um, and even though Pierre Dorian's gone, I think if you would have asked him a few years ago what he hoped Ottawa would look like right now. I think he would look, he would say something very similar to what it is now. And, and they're having trouble as well. So, so let's, let's do this because we were asked by a lot of people, but just keep that in mind that there's this notion. And I see it from a lot of fans. Like what's the plan? What's the, what's the Mm -hmm. path to competitiveness? And that path is different for every team. It changes with time. It depends on current league trends it can put, on how the game is being played on what types of players are valued more than others at given time. And, 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 and also there's something to be said about forging your own path and not following what already exists as, as a path to team building. And so, um, so there you go. That's, that's, that's the lawyer speak for a, for, for a conversation to come because there, you can still try and look at it, but, there's so many variables along the way that it's it's difficult to pinpoint exactly when a team is ready to get over that hump. So there's a 
one of the the listeners asked us a uh, stock guy one uh was asking us is there a team that has done a rebuild successfully where you see a parallel with how the haves are conducting theirs and i think that to answer that that question you have to identify well what are the characteristics of the canadians rebuild um we don't know yet if it's going to be successful or not but there's a couple of things that we can see uh emerging the first one is mm -hmm. that they did not empty or uh you know they did not empty the shelves and, and parlayed all of their veterans and do and go scorch earth the way that you said before they they started their rebuild And I say started their rebuild. That's under new management with guys like Suzuki and Caulfield that were already in the NHL. They added uh, rookies like Slavkovsky and Gouli into their, their lineup. They were brought in last year. Um, but they didn't trade everybody. And we started off by talking about L.A. And that's interesting because the L.A. Kings hit rock bottom in 2018-2019. You, you mentioned that they kept Kopitar, they kept Dali, they kept Dustin Brown until he retired. And mm. so through their lean years, they still kept those three guys. And in Montreal, I mean, dur and during those years, um, they they got a fifth round pick, a uh, fifth overall pick. They got a second overall pick, obviously, uh, that's Quinton Byfield. And finally, a number eight, which was uh, Brent Clark. And in Montreal, if you decide to compare it, let's say, with, with Montreal, I wonder what would have happened if Carey Price had not been hurt and how much that influenced the process into oh. deciding to rebuild. Because there's another listener who said, well, the Canadians have had a ton of draft picks since 2018. There was a change in management between that. There was a, a, a presence in the Stanley Cup final, albeit very surprising, But that that factors in, and you got to wonder: Would the Canadians have been taking the same approach if Carey Price had not been hurt, or would would have they sunk anyway the, the the way that they did? But let's say they let's say they did. Let's say they they would have had the troubles that we've seen so far, despite having Carey Price there. So Carey Price. Brendan Gallagher, they would be their Kopitars and their their Drew Doughty's to a certain. They would be their Gallagher would be their Dustin Brown. That's right. They they, they don't have has always, They don't have has always. They don't have a Drew. No, they Dowdy. don't. But no, they don't. They don't. But their Gallagher have always always compared them to Dustin Brown. Yeah, but it's it would be their comparison. Yeah, it's their identity, guys. Right. So mm -hmm. so it took them. It took the Kings three years of being outside the playoffs uh, before they started going back in. And they're not backing necessarily because of all their youth. Byfield, no doubt, is definitely answering the bell. But now he's entering his fourth pro year. So, again, mm -hmm. testament of patience for people who, who might think that Slavkovsky will be a bust. Although, recently, he's looking anything but that. It's hard, I, to, it's hard to call him that it's now. It's yeah. hard to call that. <laughs> but, I mean, Alex Turcotte picked fifth overall. Doesn't look too good right now for them. Um, no. Rasmus Kupari, uh, Gabriel Villardi, they're good young players. They were packaged in order to get an older player in Pierre-Luc Dubois. Uh, they traded LJ Grants. They traded Brock Faber. Uh, He's looking Arthur, really good in Minnesota right now. He does. He does. Yeah. Yes. And Arthur Kaliev, uh, Bjornfoot, Anderson Dolan, those guys who were fairly high draft picks. 
uh, are complementary players, but they're not core guys. So mm-hmm. it comes. To, so the, the lesson here is that yeah, you can have a lot of good young talent, but it's still you're still depending on your veterans at some point to to uh, to make sure that your younger players, if you identify them properly and you don't rush them, are going to be able to grow. Properly, so this is an environment right now that's extraordinary for Byfield, but uh, but you mentioned Detroit. Probably that's what Steve Eisenman taught to himself. Say instead of rushing, bringing Simon Edvinson uh, mm-hmm. and and making sure that Jonathan Bergren has a, a has a regular job and whatnot, he got all those guys that seemingly were veterans that would just enable them just to get a few more points. But at mm-hmm. the same time, they're buying time and they're making sure that their young players are not going to be rushed. Heck, it looks almost as though he wants to recreate the Grand Rapids days of when he was a player and everybody would spend three years in the American League before they would graduate. So maybe yeah. that there's a lesson there for Montreal to say, okay, we've got all those young players, but if we want to go over the hump, the our young players will not be enough and we'll have to get some outside help, which means either signing free agents or getting or packaging some of those youngsters that we might have and go get some, some proven talent uh, against some of the, either the, the amount of draft picks that the team has or the, the overabundance of defensemen that they got. So to me, wh- whether it's a more finished product like LA or a team that's up and coming like, like Detroit, what I, when I see those two teams, I think, Mm. adding veterans at some point is part of the rebuild if you want to give it the proper um, the, the, the proper rhythm. I don't know if you agree with that. Well, I mean, yeah, at some point, it's just a, it's just a matter of, of when. And so with the Canadians, they've, they've really resisted that temptation, right? I mean, they don't – it's not part of their plan um, in the near term. Maybe this offseason, based on what we've seen um, with Detroit, even Arizona, who went down that road uh, this past offseason, going and getting Kerfoot, uh, Zucker, um, you know, just adding some veteran presence to their group. And look, they're competing for a playoff spot right now. Um, perhaps I would I would say probably even in their own mind, a little ahead of schedule. Uh so yeah, the temptation's there, and and it's hard to say. I mean, you know, Buffalo waited until now to do they they did that this offseason. Eric Johnson, Connor Clifton, um, to shore up their the, you know to give their young blue liners some veteran insulation. Um, even Ottawa with Tarasenko, and and you know it's it's they had to trade Dubrincik obviously, but uh, but yeah. So my sense is the Canadians don't feel they're at that point just yet. I would be somewhat surprised if they went down that road this summer, but the summer after, um, for sure. I, and I think it's going to happen at some point. You know, I think there's some, there needs to be uh, a little bit more uh, of a cleanup done mm-hmm. of of the of the Bergevin years. Uh, you know, there's, I I I feel that this administration is comfortable, even at this bloated cap hit comfortable having Brendan Gallagher around their group. Uh, his contract's going to be extremely difficult to trade. 
Uh, and it's it's not something where the Canadians would want to eat money to trade him because they're not desperate to, to to lose him. But you know, Josh Anderson, I think in an ideal world, he would be moved at some point. He's not really helping matters right now, but um, he's a contract that they'd like to get off the books. I think David Savard at some point will probably be moved before his contract expires. Uh, perhaps maybe even this year. I mean, frankly, yeah. you look at the, you look at the market shaping up for defensemen and and you listen to the type of defenseman the Toronto Maple Leafs are looking for, a right shot D with snot, as I think Brad Tree Living termed it. That pretty much describes David Savard, and they're not the only team, you know. And so the market continues to shape up the way it is where defensemen are placed at a premium, getting two playoffs out of David Savard, who is, you know, probably at his most valuable in the playoff scenario. Uh, will be tempting for the Canadians. You know, obviously, Sean Monaghan, Tanner Pearson, other candidates to be moved this season. But, you know, overall, I think not this coming summer, but the next summer would be the year where the Canadians would look to start bringing in more veterans because I think there's still there'll be, there'll still be some guys leaving. And, and, and you look at the Sabres and – their situation on defense risks being very similar to what the Canadians might have on defense at some point. You know, Mike Matheson, I think, is going to be here throughout the life of this contract. But, you know, the Canadians build, let's not call it a rebuild, but a build is clearly based on their blue line. You know, they're building from the blue line out. Yeah, and that's so, another that's another characteristics of that rebuild. Definitely, it's the, the blue line is their strong They're, they're yeah, strong, so, I mean, you, just, you look at everything they have, blue line-wise. Mm. Uh, Gouley's already in the league. Uh, Barron's obviously showing some good things this year, was was singled out by Kent Hughes as, as, as a guy who's showing extreme progress. Um, you know, Harris is here. Struble's look good so far at a, at a pretty young age. Uh, Jack Eye's in Laval right now, but he's part of the mix. But then you look at the players who aren't here, Lane Hudson – extremely dynamic and it's hard not to watch Quinn, Quinn Hughes in, in Vancouver and think, okay, well, can Lane Hudson be some version of that? Not mm -hmm. maybe not as dominant as Quinn Hughes, but something like that, that would be a game changer for this organization. Obviously they use the number five pick on David Reinbacker, um, who's been, I guess, okay in Switzerland this year under some difficult circumstances in Cloton, but still he's a key piece But the beauty of the Canadians banking on their blue line uh, is just how much room for error they have. You know, if, uh, you know, Adam Engstrom's in the mix. Uh, Logan they, Mayu. They just, Logan Mayu. Uh, they have so many possibilities to fill out their six. And if you, if you take for granted three years from now that, or two years from now, I guess, let's say, you know, Matheson is still here, which I think he will be. Yeah. Um, you know, and all the defensemen I just listed would be candidates to be on that blue line, and there's way more than six of them. <laughs> so it's uh, so if one of them doesn't hit, really not the end of the world because they got others that that could do the job. So it's, it's 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 an interesting way to go about it because most of the time. When teams do a rebuild or a build, whatever you want to call it, um, they go they go up front. They go yeah. through the, through their forwards. And looking 
down the road, you can already kind of see what their core group at forward will be. It's already there. It's already in front of us. For uh, sure. Def and defense yeah. <laughs> is, is, is a lot more, um, there's a lot more variability on defense because they have the luxury of waiting and seeing which of this pack of players emerges. Um, you know, aside from Gooley and Rhinebacker, I think, uh, and maybe, maybe Hudson, uh, the rest of the guys, they can just kind of wait it out and see who winds up being, but, but from top to bottom, the Canadians look like they're going to have a really strong group on the blue line for many years. And we'll see how that goes because we were trying to find teams that, that have built their teams that way. Um, and there aren't that I, many. I, no, 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 no. I mean, I found one, uh, and that's the Anaheim Ducks. And we have to go back a few years already because uh, I'm not talking about the, the current Anaheim Ducks, but the, the version built by, by Bill Murray, by Bob Murray, sorry. Uh, Bill Murray as the GM. I'd love, to see, I'd love to see Bill awesome. Murray. Yeah, I'd love to awesome. see Bill Murray build an NHL <laughs> team. That would be great. Yeah. But I mean, you look, for example, in a span of what, five years? Yeah, let's let's go five years. In 2008, they had Jake Gardiner, 17 overall. Uh, in 2010, Cam Fowler, 12 overall. He was supposed to go higher than that. That was a surprise. Yeah, he, 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 slid, he slid that year, yeah. Definitely, yeah. 2012, Hampus Lindholm, number six. And 2013, Shea Theodore, 26. They were, and that's not to mention that they had other guys eventually uh, that joined in, Josh Manson and Brendan mm -hmm. Montour. They were so loaded in the back end that they could not find a spot for Shea Theodore. And that's, yeah. you know, he ended up uh, in Vegas, but he was the odd man out in Anaheim. Wrong decision in hindsight, there's no doubt about it. And it quickly became clear that it was the case. But that was the situation over there. And they ended up, during that time, uh, the, the, the Anaheim Ducks competed fairly well. They had, they had two, um, they, they, they went to the conference finals twice in 15 and in 17. And mm -hmm. after that, they cratered. Yeah. But apart from that, I mean, everybody will will try to find like the the, the big shot forward, the, the the guy, the high profile offensive star, and you're going to build mm -hmm. around him. That's pretty much always the case. So yeah. it's it's rather unusual, and it's probably something that had started already before. Jeff Gordon and and Kent Hughes came on board because that's what they had in their pipeline. They just continued to do so. They 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 continued in that vein. Not necessarily. It, it might not be necessarily a conscious strategy. It's probably just a matter of well, who's the best player available? Um, yeah. But the, but but the result is what it is now. Well, that's yeah. that's who they got. So. Uh, it's it's going to be it, it's going to be a challenge. It's probably something that will go down in the history books if the Canadians ma manage to become a contender, the way that all of their 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 pipeline is built, and mm -hmm. you know where their main assets are. Because up front, when you say uh, it's pretty easy to identify which guys are going to be there, 
we had somebody uh, who was asking us, uh, his, his name is uh, Musmus99. He says, what, the, what does the Habs top six forwards and top four defensemen look like in three years? And will they be a playoff team? So if we do that exercise, the top six mm-hmm. forwards are easy to identify, I think. Suzuki, Caulfield, Slavkovsky, Doc, uh, Newhook. And then the six guys debatable. I will go with Joshua Roy. Yeah, but, I agree. And that's if you keep got, uh, things internally. But you could assume that the sixth guy would probably be a guy, a guy, a more seasoned player coming from the outside. But if you go strictly on the the Canadians' owns, uh, Joshua Roy would probably be the number one on that list. And in the back end, you mentioned Matheson, Gooley. Yeah, and after that, take your pick. Ryan Backer. Hudson, Jacki, Barron, those guys. And then there's a whole bunch of other options after that. But oh. Suzuki, Caulfield, Slavkovsky, Doc, Newhook. Let's say just those five guys. Are they a playoff team in three years? And more than that, because I would say that in their peak, they will make the Canadians a playoff team. But will they turn this team into a contender? That's the big question. Yeah, of course, it's a big question, and and so when you mention that, you know, the, the rarity of 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 building so heavily on the blue line, you know, you look at, you know, the Canadians inherited Gouli and Mayu, um, both first round picks. Uh, you know, obviously they chose to take Ryanbacker, making that three first round picks in four years, mm. used on defensemen. Um, you know, obviously the Sabres had two number one overall picks and used them both on defensemen. So that's not, you know, they've also kind of banked heavily on building a young dynamic defense core. Um, but when you have that, I think it, it lowers the bar somewhat on how strong your forward group has to be. Um that group that you mentioned for the Canadians, I mean, a lot, it's going to, it's going to be very dependent on development, right? I mean, Kirby doc losing this year, you know, I think it's fair to put a question mark on how it's going to impact his development. He was looking like a player who was ready to, to take a step. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he becomes a more productive player than Nick Suzuki at some point. Mm-hmm. Um You know, Suzuki right now, after 26 games, is exactly on pace for 66 points, which is exactly what he produced last year. So if Suzuki settles into this as being who he is, let's say he becomes, you know, a 70-point player who is a two-way player, can can face the top opposition on the other side, can kill penalties, does it, does it all. And you have Doc as your offensive guy. Um Is that enough? Is Doc going to become? Well, it all depends on Doc because Suzuki, increasingly Suzuki is Suzuki. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I said like all to me this year should tell us who Nick Suzuki will ultimately be. You know, you can't, your age 24 season is generally who you are. And so listen, right now he's on pace for 66 points. Will he, will he surpass that? Maybe, you know, will he go Mm -hmm. on a hot streak at some point? Perhaps. But 
to me, he's looking right now like this. This is who he is, and and that's not a, that's not a bad thing. That's not a knock on him. He's he's a very good hockey player, and he's and and you know is should be a component of a winning hockey team at some point. He just can't be your most your best offensive weapon uh, in the middle of the ice, you know. And so I, I think it's fair to say that Cole Caulfield, you know, Marty had a really good answer on him today. You know, he's sitting on seven goals at this point in the season. It would not surprise me in the least that he goes on a run where he scores like six in, in 10 games and, and, and sort of writes that ship. Uh, but, you know, you do wonder if all the emphasis that Marty and the coaching staff are putting on him to round out his game and how much emphasis he himself has put on rounding, his, uh, rounding out his game, not cheating the game, uh, being better defensively, trying to trying to fill out, round out his game and become just a better overall hockey player, um, what kind of impact that's having on his on his goal scoring numbers? You know, is he cheating less and thus getting fewer opportunities? You know, it's it's but I think it's pretty safe to say that Cole Caulfield's gonna be a pretty, you know, I don't know if he's gonna win I don't think he's gonna win Rocket Richard trophies, but he should be a pretty consistent goal scorer moving forward and 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 and, and should be able to fill that role on this team. So yeah. all this to say is that the group of five players, and obviously a lot depends on Newhook. Like we just when he got hurt, he was starting he was looked like he was starting to figure stuff out and figure out what the best version of himself was. And he was looking like a very effective hockey player. A lot of energy, a lot of speed, um for checking and and pretty strong you know, stronger than you would think for a guy his size along the walls and physical one-on-one battles. Uh, you know, I don't, I, I think he's, he's competitive in that way, but it's, it's, it's fair to look at that group and be like, yeah. And then obviously we're not mentioning Slavkovsky, like Slavkovsky's, you know, the one who should have the highest ceiling in the group. Um, what is that ceiling? I think we're starting to see it, but you know, it's, it's it, we haven't seen the production yet. But it, it it'll come like within three mm-hmm. years from now. I could see Slavkovsky being a thirty-five to forty goal scorer, who is really a pain in the ass to play against, and who who's you know who's who's probably being more physical in terms of sort of punishing hits and 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 being more of a, a force on the forecheck. Right now, we're seeing him be more physical, but in puck protection, uh, in in wall battles and things like that. And as he gains more confidence offensively, we're going to see him sort of unveil a bit more of his toolbox. You know, he's still admitting that he's not fully comfortable trying everything he has uh, in his skill set in the offensive zone because he's trying to be responsible to some extent and stay within the concepts that the Canadians want to apply in that mm-hmm. in that zone um at some point you'll see him start to take the odd risk here and there uh, and and just be better at calculating the risk reward um sort of equation on a given play so you know all that to say that there's a lot there's the it's, it's not certain with that forward group but i think the point being that there's enough potential there that combined with the potential on the back end could compensate 
You know, I mean, it's it's if their if their defense is strong enough where the Canadians really don't spend much time in their zone, are really difficult um, to generate offense against, um, and with the mobility that you could potentially see. I mean, just between, I mean, let's forget Matheson for now, but just among the young guys, like between Gooley and Rhinebacker, in terms of mobile defensemen with a defensive conscience and, 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 and whose strengths are really on the defensive side of the puck, those are two guys who can kind of eliminate plays in the neutral zone before it even gets to your zone. And, you know, Gouli's still figuring that out. It's going to take Reinbacher some time to figure that out when he gets to the NHL. Um, but if you have a defense core that can prevent defensive zone shifts from even happening, but once they do happen, kill them quickly and get the puck going in the right direction, I think your forward group automatically becomes a little bit better. And so I think that's what the Canadians are banking on. You know? Yeah, because they're going to spend less time in their own end, and so it's going to be able to generate more offense on the other side. There's yeah. for sure, for sure. Yeah, um, there are two things there. First, I want to go back to Suzuki because we say, well, 24 year old is 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 a, a key season, and it's true that we seem to see the same Suzuki, very high quality player, but not not necessarily indicating that he's he's on a trajectory of becoming like a, like a superstar or anything, but it, it just reminded me of a totally different player. And yet someone who could be, who once was in a similar situation, Dylan Larkin, of mm-hmm. course, the, 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 the assets to their games are not the same at all, but for the longest time, Dylan Larkin was considered like a low end first line center, but he was a, a legitimate first-line center, but on a struggling, rebuilding team. And he had one year early on in his career where he, he had he was really, really good. I think he, he had over 70 points in his season. Fourth year in the league. At 22 years old, he had 73 points, 76 games. That was extremely promising. Then he followed that up with his season where he had 53 points. And then only 23 points in 44 games. That's mm-hmm. his... 24-year-old season. And then since since then, at 25, 26, and 27-year-old, he's become a point-per-game player, and he's really established himself as a bona fide number one centerman. And mm-hmm. the team around him is getting better too. So there's a chance that still a, 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 a bit later than that, we might see Suzuki has not had a 73-point uh, season so far. But there's a chance that he might he could this year. He could this year, and he could. Yeah. If it, my point is, statistically speaking, at least, uh, he could just have that little boop, uh, th- that little bump up that would mm-hmm. place him pretty much on par with Dylan Larkin. Which you know, th- there's no doubt that there's no McDavid's on this team. There's no Nathan McKinnon's, but you need to have guys at least that will drive your offense, and you feel like they're going to be in the right chair. So if Suzuki becomes as effective as Dylan Larkin and he's not that far off mm-hmm. and you have a supporting center like like Kirby Doc, I think you can still – you should be pretty pretty okay down the middle. But so much, so much leans on, on Doc because if Doc doesn't pan out, whether it's because what we saw last year 
was a mirage or because injuries take a, too big a toll on him. If Suzuki's if Suzuki ends up having to do the bulk of the work by himself, uh, it's it's going to be catastrophic for the Canadians' rebuild because they, it's not as though they have very very promising sentiment coming up in the pipelines. They have none. The only guy that they've got is Owen Beck, and I mean, you know, his first order of business will be to to replace Jake Evans when he arrives, and then we'll take it from there. But it's it's that's it. So well, I think that's the big that's the big difference between the group up front and the group on the blue line. Like, listen, worst case scenario for the Canadians, let's say David Reinbacker is a bust. I don't think that's going to be the case, but let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, for the sake of the argument, it's not, a, ju- the, it's not yeah, a judgment not a call you're making. It's not a judgment. No. I'm just trying to say that they, the Canadians could – they have so much depth at that position. Listen, it would be a, a severe blow to everything we talked about in terms of the Canadians basing their team build on the blue line, it would be a big blow if that were to happen. I, again, I don't, I, I'm pretty certain it won't, but it's, um, but they could withstand it. They could work mm-hmm. around it. They have, there's, there's other things. Let's, you know, I think, you know, the biggest unknown for the Canadians on the blue line or the biggest wild card is Adam Engstrom to me. I mean, he, he could be something really special, you know, and he's, he's, he's playing in Rogla right now where, where more Sider played and where that they've done an excellent job de- developing defensemen in the past. Um, looks really good. looks like he could be a player. And so, you know, as you mentioned, the Canadians don't have that up front. Like when you're basing, when everything rides on one guy who's never done it at the NHL level, we've never seen Kirby doc be a, you know, a sort of, a, we've seen flashes of dominance from him last season, but, you know, we're, it's, it's a lot to put on a guy's shoulder who shoulders, who has never performed at that level over 82 games in the NHL before. Yeah. So, and if it, and, it, and as you mentioned, if it doesn't work out, the Canadians will have to scramble a bit, you know, because they don't have that in the system right now. Can they add that through the draft this year? Yes, but that that player won't be ready probably in time to hit this specific three-year window. Um, they could trade for it. They could add in free agency. There's other avenues, as we've mentioned, but a lot of the Canadians' future at the forward position or just the future of their forward group sort of rides on Kirby Doc being that player, and that's far from a sure thing. I think he will be uh, if he can stay healthy. Um, do I know he will be? No, I can't know he will be because he's, he hasn't done it. He hasn't done it on a consistent basis in his whole life. And so, um, so that's a bit, that's a bit of a precarious thing because really in, in, in goal, which we haven't addressed yet, um, which is an area that shouldn't be overlooked. I mean, you look at Buffalo, you look at Ottawa, where's their big problem? You know, (laughs) it's in goal. I mean, it's, it's, it's probably, it's the biggest problem for, for both teams. Um, you look at Edmonton, you look at Carolina even right now. I mean, it's just, it's just like, it's so Man, Carolina. Yeah. Carolina. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I had him in the Stanley cup final. And you know, if you don't have a goalie, you're not going to get there. And so, no. you, know, you know, last week we spoke about your visit with Jacob Fowler. I think the Canadians are high on him. Uh, the Russian kid who's Volokin. Volokin. Yes. Yes. Um, 
what he's doing. You know, I mean, there's some promise in Montembeau, obviously, uh, showing promise as being someone who can be a, at the very least a bridge to those guys and, and maybe wind up tandeming with one of them for a year or two. Um, I think the situation in goal is going to work itself out. Uh, they should be okay. So really the, the big question mark is the forward group. And the, and that's why when they do feel it's the time is right to dip their toes into free agency, I think that's what they're going to try to address. Right. So um, speaking of which, the at the uh, latest Board of Governors meeting, it was uh, the, the, the estimate for next season places the salary cap for next year uh, a shade 87.7. Right, a shade below 87.7. And uh, so that would put the Canadians in a quite interesting situation for the future. Obviously, Mm -hmm. when you increase the cap 4.2 million, everybody will say, well, that's that's extra money for everybody. So in that sense, the Canadians are necessarily in a better position than other teams. But it would would, uh, reduce the pressure, you know, in managing carry prices – you know, uh, contract under the cap uh, just in time for for the beginning of the season. Uh, despite his his current stellar play, Yuri uh, Slavkovsky is not going to hit all of his on all of his bonuses. They're going to have they're going to have money to to play with next season and the mm-hmm. year after. Uh, they have a few UFA to be that, uh, that that are going to be traded. And used as rentals, you know, Monaghan and Pearson come to mind. You mentioned Savard. It's a possibility that uh, Allen gets traded too. So in in the next few years, uh, those projections suggest because that's not going to be the the only increase. Uh, obviously, it's tied to the revenues of the league. But if it's four million dollars north of four million dollars for next season, the year after it could could still be more than that. The Canadians have positioned themselves financially where they are in their rebuild in an interesting position also to to make up for the fact that they might not have that top-hand talent uh, up front by going very aggressively on the market because of that margin that they're going to have. And when you look at the other uh, high-end teams, they might not have those. Uh, mm-hmm. So they've started locking up those younger assets, but the, if they were ma- if they were able to capitalize uh, on the fact that Doc is still at a, f- a team friendly contract, Newhook could turn to be a family fr- uh, a team friendly contract, uh, and you know who knows? Yeah, uh, yeah, I know. It's, sometimes I've got expressions in my in my <laughs> brain that. Uh, uh, I don't know if 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 Caden Gooley is ready to break the bank just yet. They have they have good players, but that are not going to necessarily be extremely pricey for the time being. So mm-hmm. I think that they're in a good position financially also to overcome the the, the inefficiencies that we might see and that we started pointing out uh, during our discussion. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I mean, you know, by twenty five, twenty six. Yol Army will be off the books. Christian Dvorak will be off the books. I mean, Slavkovsky will need a new contract for that season. Guli will need a new contract for that season. But it's, you know, they should, you know, who knows what Slavkovsky does between now and then. Maybe he will put himself in a position to sign a very lucrative second contract. But 
Um, and maybe Gouli will do the same. Who knows? But they, I agree that they, they will have put themselves in position. And, and by 25-26, um, that'll be the last year of Carey Price's contract, which which means you and I are, are both really old. Like it's, it's just I know, uh, but anyhow, it's yeah. By twenty, but that'll be the last year of Carey Price's contract. At which point, um, a whole other world of possibilities opens up, and and obviously Savard's contract will be off the books that year as well. So it's yeah, it's it's there is a possibility in the summer of twenty twenty five to be really aggressive, uh, either on the trade market or on the free agent market. But it's it's they're not at that point now, and and so yeah. you know, and really. You look at, you know, you mentioned Owen Beck one day replacing Jake Evans. Like Evans' contract is up in 2025. So 25-26 would be a reasonable time to expect Owen Beck to be a third line or fourth line center on this team. You know, if he if, if his development goes as anticipated. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, but I think, you know, I think what all the fans who just kind of wrap up this part of the discussion, you know, what all those fans want, and I think what every Canadiens fan wants and is worried about is when will this team be good? When can I have a good team that like wins all the time and like is a contender going and, and doesn't need a miracle run to make it to the Stanley cup final, a team that's considered a contender to win the cup. And the sad reality is, is it might not be three years from now. It might be five years from now. It might be six years from now. And, but it would be important, you know, I think that this administration is looking for ways to shorten that. And, you know, you and I were talking earlier and, 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 you know, obviously the comparison with the Rangers is appropriate just because Jeff Gordon is here. He oversaw that. And, and again, you know, I mean, you look at what turned their, rebuild around it was not necessarily their high draft picks it was how well they drafted late in the first round it was getting Artemi Panarin as a free agent having Adam Fox essentially arrive as a free agent I mean basically chose his destination and they traded for him and and, and acquiring Jacob Truba so you you couple that with drafting Keandre Miller uh Braden Schneider Philip Hedl um Hanging on to Chris Kreider, you know, not 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 jettisoning him That's off right. when when they sent Zuccarello away and and a bunch of other guys uh, after the famous letter. Um, they kept Zibanejad also another yeah. veteran that they kept. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so they identified the guys that that can be part of a winning group. Drafted really well, aside from the top, and even at the top of the draft. I mean, Alexi Lafreniere, you know, everyone in Montreal is looking at Byfield because it's just a natural comparison to Slavkovsky because of his size, but you look at Lafreniere, also a winger, is taking is is looking good right now, you know, but and, and I think the comparison is more appropriate with Lafreniere because he's playing in a market where the where the heat is on him. He he has been playing through a similar amount of pressure uh as to what Slavkovsky feels. Uh the only layer Lafreniere doesn't have is is having like you know, the entire country of Slovakia watching your every single move every at one at one in the morning. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I recently spoke to a reporter um, in Slovakia for and, and, you know, he writes, he watches every game. 
um, stays up until all hours of the night. Actually, the day I spoke to him, um, he was planning to, his name's Stefan Bugan. He, he writes for, I keep forgetting, I feel so bad. I keep forgetting the name of his outlet. But he, uh, the day I spoke to him, he was going to watch the Canadians game at 1 a.m. in Slovakia. And Shimon Nemitz's game was on at 4 a.m. because they're in the West Coast. Uh, the Devils were. And so he had to watch both those games. And, and, and he was like, you know, there's value in me watching those games and just writing how they did and what happened in the game because most people don't watch it. So they can wake up in the morning and they, they, they can wake up and read my thing. And I, I, I stayed up all night for them. So it's, it's really, but to get back to my point, like Lafreniere is, is, has, has figured something out so far this year. You know, I think Rangers, the Rangers organization and Rangers fans are starting to be like, okay, this is looking more and more like the player that we thought we were drafting number one overall. And we're seeing that with Slaff right now. You know, and so it's an encouraging sign, you know, that Slavkovsky's there's a few things that Slavkovsky's really starting to figure out. Not producing like you would expect a number one overall pick to produce, but he's 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 reaching stages that suggest that he could be uh, he could be a piece of that forward group we were talking about earlier that's that's not variable. That's that's a more of a known quantity that you can say two, three years from now and up I'm not fully confident saying it yet, but I'm getting there where you say two, three years from now, Uri Slavkovsky is going to be a high-end, if not superstar, but like a high-end forward in the NHL. Mm -hmm. And so um, that that would help. The, the, sure. No doubt. Well, he's drafted first overall in his, in his draft year. You have, you have to hit on a player like that. You know, yeah. it's, it's got – otherwise – Take say he might not he doesn't have to be as good as a number one pick from another year, but he's got to be one of the best players of his own crop, and he's got mm -hmm. to be an impact player on your team. That's what yeah. I'm expecting, and I'm I'm confident that it's going to happen. Um, just l maybe a, a last question because there's one angle that uh, we have not covered, and it's the draft picks, uh, which the Canadians have had in large numbers for a few years now. Um, and there's this, uh, and still uh, have in upcoming they years. Still, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. so there's a listener who's asking us, he says, what's, what is considered capacity in the Canadian system in terms of the number of prospects they can accommodate and develop? They have so many draft picks. It seems unlikely they could ever make use of them all. Uh, so the Canadians have averaged, I've calculated that since 2018, they've averaged 9.6 players selected per draft, which is a lot. You have that one year, that have two years, but that's over, you know, that that's over the past five five drafts, it's not six. So right now they own also 11 picks for the next draft and another 11 picks uh, in 2025. And those in 2025 are actually higher quality picks than the ones from the next. Uh, well, they have two picks, two picks in each of the first four rounds. Exactly. Yeah. That's that that you you're you're really it's a it's a good setup. So mm -hmm. I expect I expect that they would package some of those draft picks to get more immediate assets. I don't expect them to draft 11 players in either of those drafts. Mm -hmm. um, but 
you know, when you take the balance of the veterans who are set to become uh, free agents, the guys like uh, Monaghan, Pearson, but also those in Laval, the, the Meillet and guys like that. So all the UFAs in the organization, and you balance it out with all the junior age players who are likely to start their contract in 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 the pros next year, so Reinbacker, but also Philip Michar. Mm-hmm. That should bring the number of contracts. Owen Beck. Rough. Owen Beck. It should mm-hmm. uh, bring the number of contracts to roughly 42 and 43. Obviously, that's before they add additional guys, either via trade or or, or on the market. But that's pretty much where, where you would be. So, but there are, there'll be additional guys signed. But there's also, don't forget that there are among those, all that, those prospects that there many have fallen in the cracks, right? Since they were drafted and there's only for next summer, there's only Cédric Guindon, I think, and Alex Tuck who will be guys that the team will, the organization will say, oh, well, do we sign them or not? Mm-hmm. So I don't think that they're in any, any danger of being too close, let's say to the 50 contract limits. Uh, but Overall, I think that there should not be any uh, any concern with the capacity of the Canadians' system to integrate all of their younger players. Because so, some fall out of the map very quickly. Uh, there's some guys that can start in the CHL. Some are being given American League deals, you know, like Harvey Pinard or Simono, guys like that, prior mm-hmm. to their entry level. Uh, Davidson so, right now in, in, in Laval. That's a good point. Yeah. That's another one. So I don't think that the fact that they're old, they're having too many prospects, they're having too many draft picks, what, what they're going to do with all of that, it, the attrition almost it comes naturally. It's it's like when you have too many guys in Laval at the beginning of the season. Just just wait a few weeks, and with all the injuries in Montreal, in Laval, everywhere, it it trickles down uh, naturally, and well, that problem solves itself yes. easily. Yes, but there's there's a bigger issue. And I think this is kind of a good segue into our sort of future Friday portion because, you know, we were going to talk about Laval. Um, I had a chance to chat with Emil Heinemann in Laval on Wednesday night after they lost their eighth straight game. And, and this is going to be my counter to what you're saying. And I think this is where I think the question is quite valid because it's not only a matter of contracts. It's not a matter of um, when you say capacity for prospects, it's – do you have enough of a situation to put these prospects in the best position to properly develop and succeed? Um, I think if you ask some of the guys in Laval right now how things are going, you're not going to get a lot of positive answers. Emil Heinemann definitely didn't have a lot of positive answers. The, the losing was weighing on him hard. It was very difficult for him to accept what was happening. He hasn't even been in the lineup for the entirety of this eight-game losing streak. Um, which, you know, the, the Laval's playing later this evening, so maybe by the time you listen to this, they've broken that eight-game losing streak, but still, the environment is heavy over there. Yeah. Um, just quickly on Heinemann, I mean, he's, you know, he's coming back from an quote-unquote upper body injury. I asked him if it was a concussion, he wouldn't comment on it, um, which was funny. He just He looked me dead in the eye and said, I'm not going to comment on that. I was like, okay. <laughs> Gotcha. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, but, you know, he's, you know, he's sort of, his timing's not quite there. And you kind of, you saw it in the game against Belleville on Wednesday where he, he sort of whiffed on a couple of one-timer opportunities, but he's still generating shots. Um, you know, had a goal and assist in his first few games after coming back, you know, and I think 
if he can get that timing down and sort of get into game shape, um, the quicker the better for him because there's there's an opportunity in Montreal right now. I think if 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 he's able to do that, um, I'm sure the Canadians would like to give him a look um, yeah. because I think you know even coming out of training camp, I think they would have liked to have given him a look. So so that's it's worth monitoring how Heineman does over the next few games. But again, under the current under the current environment, Laval it's difficult for him to get up to speed because the team is playing so poorly and, and against Belleville, I mean, they were just no shows for the first 40 minutes of that game. I mean, it was not, it was just this emotionless. Uh, I mean, JF Hull after the game said, it looked, it looked like we, it looked like we were a little scared. It looked like we were playing scared, which hearing a coach say that about your team and uh, that's tough. So you know, and and I asked him because as early but, as the is it scared scared because of the opponents scared because they they're they're so engulfed into that losing streak. He left it open ended, but I think I got the impression that because he's talked about Belleville before as being kind of a big, intimidating, physical team, and and that Laval has not responded yeah, well to that in in past games against them uh, because of their youth. So I think he meant scared of the opponent. Like, honestly, and, and yeah, he didn't specify it. I sh this is me interpreting it based on things he said in the past about Belleville and the way they play. Um, but maybe it was a bit of everything. You know, I don't know. I, can't, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but just for him okay. to say that they were playing scared was pretty significant in my mind. So mm -hmm. uh, back in the rookie tournament in Buffalo, uh, as early as that, Jeff Hull, and even earlier, I think, even at development camp, I think Jeff Hull said this where it, over the summer where he was like, it's going to be tough this year. And But it, I specifically remember him in rookie camp saying, until Christmas, it's going to be difficult. And I've seen it in the past, but after Christmas, hopefully we'll get there and, and things will start to turn around for us. So he knew this was coming. And presumably the players knew this was coming, you know, because he, you know, he said that publicly. I would have to imagine he told it to them too to get ready for this. So then after that game against Belleville, after their eighth straight loss, a game in which they showed no fight, no compete, no cohesion, no pushback, no nothing. I I brought this up with him. I said, "Listen, you said before the season, even before tra before your training camp even started." That it was going to be difficult until Christmas, and we're not at Christmas yet. It's coming, but we're not there yet. So are you not – is this not part of the process? Is this not – was this not foreseeable? And, and and so he said, yeah, it was – it is part of the process. It was foreseeable. But I said it would be hard until Christmas, and it is. It's hard. <laughs> it's yeah. like it's – you know, we're in it right now, and it's difficult. So just because I knew – You know, he didn't say this specifically, but what he meant is like, just because I knew it was going to be hard doesn't make it easy. It's hard. I knew it would be hard, and it is. And so, so when you talk to someone like Heinemann, and you know, I'm trying to ask him about his own aspirations, his own development, his own ability to get called up by the Canadians, the opportunity that's ahead of him, and he couldn't focus on that because it was so difficult to process the way the team was playing. And, and and the losses that were building up. So to get back to that question, that's the side of capacity for prospects that I think is another factor to consider. Like how many young players can you have in Laval 
and have Laval be an appropriate development environment for these young players. And, you know, Joshua Guo was, the world was his oyster a month or two, you know, a month and a half ago. Not so much anymore. And frankly, yeah. who called him out after that game as an example of, of what's difficult about this is that, you know, Joshua Gua has shown, no, it's funny because he was answering me in English and he called him Roy. I was like, whoa, that's weird. But anyhow, but anyhow he's well, like, you know, it's, he's like, it's, like when, it's like when Claude Julien used to talk about Paul Byron and call him Biron. Biron, exactly, Byron. yeah. Exactly. So he was like, you know, well, you look at a guy like Roy, like I thought he wasn't very good tonight. He was okay in Abbotsford, but he wasn't very good tonight. So that's, mm -hmm. that's part of it. Lack of consistency. Riley Kidney, I thought he was non-existent tonight, he said. Aside from that one move, he wasn't there, but he had a good trip in Abbotsford. So if you, and, and who talked about this, like when he has so many, and this is why they sent Michelle down to Kitchener, a big reason why, because they had reached a certain capacity, to get back to the question, a certain capacity of young players who are getting used to the American Hockey League where it was going to be impossible to get them all the appropriate amount of ice time and 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 also place them in an environment that doesn't have to be like a total winning environment. They, they, they shouldn't be expected to be dominating the American Hockey League, but they got to compete. they got to be in competitive yeah. games. It can't be just chasing the puck all night over and over and over again. So... You know, I think that's an important consideration here too. When he, when when that question is relevant in that sense, because we're seeing it right now in Laval, is and let's be clear, there are veterans in Laval and they're not delivering the goods. You know, they lost Mitchell Stevens, who was a big part of that team, but you know, Gabriel Bourque, uh Maillet, who you just mentioned, like they have guys, Brady Keeper, who is who's partnered with Jackai, Arbor Jackai in that game, you know, Gignac, they have like older guys who are supposed to be sort of regulating the youth of the team who aren't doing it, but you can't just load your AHL team up with 19 and 20 and 21 year old prospects and expect it to go fine. Like that's well, it, it's funny because it looks as it sounds as though it's the extension of what we were talking about earlier about teams that are talented and yet maybe too young at the NHL level yeah. and the benefits of having older guys to have them around them. Yeah. Uh, because the Laval Rocket could be very well the American League equivalent of the Buffalo Sabres yeah. or the Montreal Canadiens to a certain extent. They, the other day, you know, uh, we mentioned it on the previous episode, Nick Suzuki brought up the fact that they were icing currently the youngest roster, the youngest lineup in the NHL. So yeah. it's something that they're acutely aware of the fact of the fact of how young they are, and but there's something though to that effect because you brought up the name Brendan Gignac who who's knocking at the door and yet he's a guy who signed on an American League deal. Mm -hmm. So I wonder it's a sidebar to 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 Heineman that the rest of the conversation, but there's always been. You look at guys like uh, that were in Montreal before or in Laval, uh, whether it's Alex Belzil or before that, uh, the uh, what's the name of that uh, Quebec defenseman uh, who left for the Penguins uh, organization? My God. I oh, Xavier Ouellet. Xavier Ouellet. Yeah. These guys, even though they were American League players, they never 
cease to dream of the NHL. And maybe that Brendan Gignac was not that old. I mean, he was born in 1997. He's still still reasonably young. Yeah. Uh, and who's who's a key player on that team? If he w- if he had an NHL deal, he, personally, he could have that drive of saying, you know what? If I push a bit harder, I could earn a call up. Uh, but he can't because he's stuck because well, of his. I mean, because he, the motivation his... for him is to earn an NHL contract. That's the motivation. Like when the season's over. Oh, when the season not... sure 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 for, when the season's over, yes, but uh, it's not. It's not it's not going to happen during the season otherwise two years ago they would have uh, given uh, an NHL contract to uh, to uh, to uh, that goalie who was uh, you know before they went and and uh, and acquired Hammond Andrew Hammond uh, they had Kevin Poulain that they could have flipped his contract and just yeah, yeah. but that's that's, uh, you know. that's that's Brandon Gignac's reality I mean that's listen that's it That's but it. That's... But when you look my 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 only point is that when you are when you have Guys that are so young and who want to uh, want to develop the best they can, it's good to have veterans that show the same drive and that that have immediate aspirations for better things. And so, so that's I just find it odd because other if Gignac had been had a, an NHL contract, he would have been considered for a call up, you know, just as much as Mitchell Stevens. That's yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I think all those guys are motivated to make the NHL and, and having an NHL contract would make you even more motivated. I don't know. It's, it's, you know, the thing is, is that you need the Brandon Geniacs, you need the Alex Belzils, you need the Mitchell Stevens. It's like, there's a reason why teams sign these guys every year to play in yeah. the NHL. The reason being that you are currently seeing what happens when uh, when you load your when you load your team up in the AHL with younger players and so that question we're seeing that the we're seeing the answer to that question play out right now in real time in Laval and and I mean JF will, like you know those players are having a hard time with it right now mm-hmm. and it's it's you know being in that dressing room on Wednesday night reminded me of talking to the Anaheim Ducks when they came to Montreal last season um, and just the yeah. utter depression in that room <laughs> and Mason McTavish saying how it's not fun to play hockey right now and Trevor Zegras mm-hmm. with his cap pulled down and just just sounding dead inside is they were dejected they were and, oh. and but but they came out of it and now they're not out of it but they, they're seeing they seem to think that they're They're coming out the other side, at least they're starting to come out the other side. I spoke yeah. to Mason McTavish when we were, when the Canadians were in Anaheim and uh, he was like, yeah, like, I was like, what, looking back on it now, that time, because he remembered that conversation that we had. He like, you know, I was like, I talked to you when you guys were in Montreal. I was like, yeah, I remember. And I was like, do you with the benefit of hindsight now with, with with being able to look back on that did you get anything out of that experience he's like yeah i know that i never want to do that ever again <laughs> like that's wow. that's the benefit he's like i never want to go through something like that ever again so now we know what it looks like so that when we see elements of that creeping into our game we can nip it in the bud sooner 
because we never want to go through that ever again. Now, listen, maybe there is value to that. Maybe there is something that a young player can, 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 can take from that and propel them forward. But that is one hell of a negative experience. And, and, and for someone like Mason McTavish, who's a hockey junkie to say hockey wasn't fun anymore. And it's, it's, it's becoming fun. It's fun again now. Uh, 82 games is a long time to have hockey not be fun. And and you don't know how different players are going to react to that. It, it really depends on your internal makeup. And so extending that to the AHL level, when you're a 19-year-old kid or a 20-year-old kid, you've always been a dominant player in your league up until that point. Suddenly you're getting pushed around. You can't stay on your ski. The physical, the physicality of the league is is jarring you know i mean vocal imama on wednesday night was just running roughshod all over the ice like honestly like the yeah i was jack i was there but he was the sheriff right? yeah 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 jack yeah. i wanted either wanted no part of that or was told not to take any part of that yeah. and i don't think there would have been any benefit in really fighting the guy other than to say stop running my guys you know and and but you could see the impact it like it you know, guys like Wah, like Kidney, like, you know, Mishak to some extent. I mean, it's intimidating. And it can Farrell. be tough. Farrell, well, Farrell wasn't playing. Yeah, Farrell's out. Yeah, Farrell's but out. It's, yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think that there's a limit to how many of your young guys you can put in the AHL. And, but, to get, but just to get back to your point with the draft picks, 100% that I think, I think people should look at those picks more so as trade capital than draft capital at this point. It's the, the upcoming picks over the next two drafts mm-hmm. provide the Canadians with a tremendous amount of trade capital. And to go back to what we were talking about, where at what point do they make a splash? Do they try and bring in that forward that's going to make a difference for their forward group? I think over the next two drafts, uh, and in all likelihood, the 2025 draft, um, I think we're going to see the Canadians try to pull something like that off, but we'll see. As for, uh, I'm wrapping this up and our future Friday with a last question on Emil Einemann. Do you think that, uh, uh, if he manages to get rid of the, the, the concerns regarding the losing streak, uh, do you think that we're going to see him in Montreal at some point? Oh yeah. If he remains healthy you know this what? season. And you know what? Emil Heinemann in that game, he did not play scared. I don't think he played scared. He was up to the physical challenge that the Senators presented. That's a big, rugged, AHL-hardened team. And he was not scared. He he was going into battles, ready to battle. And yes, he, his timing was off. Yes, he wasn't getting to spots at the right time. He was he whiffed, as I mentioned, on one-timers. Like The skill elements of his game are still rounding into form. But in terms of a mentality... In terms of a, of, a, of a sense of competitiveness and pride and 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 just lack of intimidation, um, I thought Emil Heinemann was up to the challenge in that game. Didn't play his best game, but he didn't play scared. And no, I think I think the Canadians are very high on him. They're very intrigued by him, um, and they want to see him at the NHL level. And it's not as if they don't have injuries that they need to fill right now. It's not as if they don't have room on their top six for a guy like Emil Heinemann. So I think once he finds his game in Laval, I don't know this. I have no inside information on this. I would not be the least bit surprised 
if as soon as Emil Heinemann sort of gets his timing back and 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 figures it out mm-hmm. and gets back to his regular self in Laval, that we'll see him in Montreal in relatively short order. Because when we uh, when we mentioned the top six forwards, maybe in th- three years down the road, we mentioned Joshua Roy as the sixth guy. Yeah, he could be a he could but, be. A guy. But Emil Heinemann could be that sixth guy too. Yeah. It's, but, you know, it's, and, it's and you know, and if you extend that to a top nine, I mean, that's what that's what guys like Heineman, Hua, you know, Farrell, like all these Harvey sort Pinar. of, uh, yeah, Harvey Pinar, uh, Kidney to some extent. I mean, these are all guys that I think if you extend it to a top nine, you know, it, it provides the Canadians with a good depth of talent up front. But again, that top end stuff uh, is where the question marks lie, and the Canadians either have to hope. Doc turns into someone like that, or as we just mentioned, with all the draft capital they've accumulated, the cap space that's coming, they can convert those two things into bringing that element of that forward group in from the outside. That's good. Just all wrapped up in one <laughs> nice little bow at the end. All right. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Arpin. So uh, enjoy the weekend, everybody. We'll talk to you again on Monday. Uh, there's going to be our Monday mailbag. So once again, send us your questions. We're at Basu and Godin at gmail.com or on Twitter. I refuse to call it X at Basu and Godin. And uh, well, that's it. Otherwise, you can read us in The Athletic and on RadioCanada.ca. So uh, that's it. Enjoy the games, everybody. See you soon.